you've been looking for a podcast to help you transform your physical and mental one that'll shoot you straight between the eyes with truth and no bs helping you have the right mindset to accomplish things the iron will and fortitude to follow through with what you say you're going to do no excuses Mark owns martial arts schools, and after 30 years, he has some real insight for real talk, real life, real conversations, motivational, fitness, self-defense, weight loss, live from the Great 1-8. This is Real Talk with Mark Cox. And there we go. So we're live. So we may get some comments in here. So I get to have Andrea today. We got to have a, a few minute talk before the show. Seems like a very awesome lady. So we're looking forward to uh, to uh, getting to see some of her expertise and what she does. So today, guys, I have uh, Andrea Bittner. She's an educator, an author, and a speaker. She lives in Philadelphia. We were just talking. I was just there. She was. Uh, she has worked with students in grades K through 12 through her 22 years in public education from all around the world. Her first book, Take Me Home, was published by Austin McCauley, I think is a correct pronunciation, in July of 2021. Take Me Home is the true story of 11 of her former EL students who give a firsthand account of what it's really like to become bilingual in America. She is also co-author of Chip Baker's The Impact of Three and Dr. Rick Jader's, uh, Jet, is it Jader's, I guess, yeah, 100 No-Nonsense Things All School Leaders Shout stop doing. She currently teaches and travels the country speaking and teaching and education and how to teach and reach EL students and effectively communicate with EL families. So that's good, man. That's uh, I was telling you beforehand, I have a daughter that's a teacher. So we are, you know, and everybody loves teachers and and we have total respect for what you guys got to do and and how you do it. You've been in there for 22 years, I guess, then, huh? Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Yep. It's been 22 years already. It, it goes by quick, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> It really does. I, 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 I tell my students this all the time. I'm like, man, you're going to youth is going to pass you by so quick. You have no idea. So, you you know, pack in everything you can from from others that have wisdom uh, why you can. So, well, tell me. So do where, what grade do you teach currently now? Because, Lucy, it looks like you're in your classroom right now, correct? I am. Yep. I'm in my classroom. And um, right now I'm working with students in grades uh, one to eight. And then I'm mentoring and helping out the high school with some students in nine to 12. So I see everybody. So, so tell me what that does. So do you, are you specifically working like you would have special education right in there? Is this, is this specifically for students that are, are uh, English learning students? Is that yeah. exactly who you work with? Yes. So I work with kids from all walks of life, um, kids who were born here, kids who were adopted, kids who are exchange students, kids who waited 10 years for a visa and came before their parents and live with family kids. I have kids who waited many years for a visa and came after mom and dad um, with all different levels of education. Some kids were formally educated in boarding schools or school systems around the world. Some kids were educated two miles down the street in districts nearby. Some kids um, come in from other countries and they've been to school or have never been to school. We have kids that have crossed the border. So we have a lot of kids from a lot of different places um, and I work with them in all different grades. And so how is that? Is it heartbreaking stories or awesome stories or are they both? Are they mixed? 
Yeah. I mean, I could have stories for days. You know, we have a, a, a lot of everything. Um, we have lots of kids who have had heartbreaking stories. We have kids who have had a lot of challenges. Um, but what we are really proud of is how we work through those with them and their parents and then get them to that success at the end. Yeah, that's it's really good. So I so when you guys when you say that you that's who you work with, are you specifically working with like uh, curriculum or what does that look like? So when we work with English language learners, we were working on four skills, reading, writing, listening and speaking. And when kids come in, they come in with all different levels and abilities, right? So we have kids that could come in who have been formally educated in their first language. They're really strong, let's say, in Spanish, and they can read it and they can write it and listen and speak to it. If those kids come in, I'm going to test them in those four areas. And then I'm going to figure out, do they need more writing skills? Do they need more reading skills? Do they need listening skills, speaking skills, or do they need everything, right? So we kind of start to figure that out. Other kids that come in, I've had kids that have come in and have been wicked readers and writers, but when you put them in front of somebody else to listen and speak, they become a deer in headlights. I've had kids that are the opposite. I have kids who will talk your ear off all day long. And then you put a piece and people are like, really, Andrea, they're learning English? Like you're playing around. And I'm like, no, they are English language learners. But if I put a piece of content in front of them, that academic language, that's when they'll start to struggle. So you really have a spectrum of need. And then it's our job to determine what those needs are and then adjust our curriculum and work with those kids to increase those skills. Yeah, that's why well, was such an important thing. You know, I'm a this is a good interview for me because usually I'm on this spectrum of uh, special, ed, you know, special uh, and, you know, autistic and, and stuff like that is, is something that we love inside the martial arts schools anyway, because they're so overlooked and uh, man, they are bullied something fierce. And uh, I don't know if that's the same thing that happens there, but um, you, you know, I, I have yeah. a heart for them. You do. And, you know, being a part of that inclusiveness and, and the adaptation of, of working through all the things that are different in the U.S., especially if you weren't born here, you know, not only the language, but the culture and the system differences and the rules and the adaptations of the community and the local accents. Right. And the speed of the talk, you know, where I am on the Northeast, I always jokingly but lovingly say we're in the fastest speaking, most impatient part of the country. And so you know, when people come here, the tolerance isn't always there for someone um, who's learning the language. But what I always encourage people to consider is that lack of language never equals lack of intelligence. And that, well, that's uh, such a good that's such a good thing to say right there. That's yeah. awesome. I'm going to yeah. write that down. That was yeah, a good one. absolutely. I mean, if you dropped me in um, a different country like Benin or something like that and I had to speak tree. I would probably not, I can tell you, I wouldn't be able to at first do the jobs that I do now. That wouldn't be an option for me until I educated myself and learned what I needed to, to navigate that new spot. Uh, that's good. So Jose saying he, him and his wife loved your book. He's on here. Uh, you know, Thank you know, you. Jose, right? He's a good dude. Yes. I don't get to say that very often about him because we're always kind of at each other's throats. But. <laughs> <laughs> he and his wife are we, 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 we kid around with each other all the time, man. We're good buds. Um, so I want to ask you about the book that, so you had the story of 11 students. So what is that? What does that mean? How did you write that book? Now, did you, did you interview your students or did, is this what you experienced watching them go through? 
Okay. So I think it's important to tell a little bit of the backstory of where this inspiration came from. So about 10 years ago, I had about 40 different students with about 25 different languages in grades nine through 12 at Interborough High School. And like I mentioned earlier, they came from a variety of backgrounds. And the one thing that we had in common in our classroom was this huge banner. And the banner said, education is opportunity. Education is freedom. What's your plan? And because our kids knew that their only plan couldn't be to return to their country and their only plan couldn't be, I'm not going to be successful here because we drilled it into them that their parents had worked so hard to give them the opportunity at a free education, right? Because the public schools or the private schools that they go to in K to 12, that's their, you know, for lack of better words, like free time, right? Free education for them to be educated before they have to go out into the working world as adults and pay for that to learn to read and write and listen to speak English. And so we had this huge senior day every year where our seniors who were now young bilinguals out and working in the world would come back to school and they would bring our current seniors a t-shirt. And that t-shirt was there to celebrate wherever it was they were headed next. It didn't matter if it was military, didn't matter if it was jobs, uh, university, local community college, YouTuber, entrepreneur, whatever it was, they were there to talk to them about what was waiting for them being bilingual out in the world and celebrate this chapter that they had completed. And so on that day, our seniors would get to sign this What's Your Plan banner. And so this one particular family I worked with, the Lopez family, I had taught all seven of their children over a period of time, and there were all boys and one girl. And they had happened to be from the country of El Salvador. And I've traveled to El Salvador a few times myself to work with schools and families down there. And so one day, all those kids went through this what's your plan mentality in this program in this community that we had built. And about a year after I was teaching, all those boys went through and the young lady named Nancy, I was teaching outside and I saw a bunch of helicopters. And I thought, wow, like there looks like a lot of helicopters outside today. I hope everything's all right. And about an hour after I was teaching, my principal came down to get me to let me know that one of my students had been stuck, struck by the train. And unfortunately, oh. that student was Nancy. She was the only female in the Lopez family that I had worked with. She had made a decision that day to wear headphones and she was walking along the inside of the gate and she was clipped from behind, behind by the Acela. And so when we watched that video with mom and dad later, and mom and dad were still learning English themselves, dad's a pastor in the city and mom worked alongside of him. When I got that news and our EL community had got that news and mom and dad had got that news, one of the biggest challenges of that day was that mom and dad were still learning English. So when they received a call that something had happened, there was no one on the local force that was speaking Spanish at that time. And so they could kind of put together that something had happened to one of their kids, but they weren't sure which one it was. And so they oh, ran up to the train tracks and they were waiting there for hours, calling everybody and trying to figure out who had passed away. And so over the next couple of weeks, we worked with immigration. We worked with the local funeral parlor. We worked with uh, senators and politicians to try to get her uh, brother to be able to get a visa to come back and bury his sister, which he was denied. We worked with the Latino community who was coming every night to sit with mom and dad. And one of my jobs was to speak at her funeral. And so at the time, I created this short poem and we called it Take Me Home. And it happened to be an homage to Nancy's crossing into the U.S. And so I read that poem at that funeral 
And a few weeks later, I sat that on my desk and I continued to teach and work with all the people in this community. And a few months later, I saw that piece of paper sitting out on my desk and I thought to myself, well, maybe somebody could use this story. Maybe something about it would be beneficial to them. And so I sent it out to a bunch of publishers on a whim. And about six months later, a publisher got back to me and they said, hey, Andrea, we really like your poem, but we don't want you to write a poem. We want you to write a book and we're going to give you six months to do it. And if you come back with something that we like, we're going to take you on and publish it. And Mark, I started to think, well, I don't just want to tell her story. I wanted to tell all their stories because they're so different. And a lot of people make the assumption that English language learners are the same. And so that's when I went back and found 11 of my former bilingual students who are now in their late 20s, early 30s. And I had six months of conversations with them where we discussed, now that you're a young bilingual professional out and working in the world, and you can reflect on that experience, what was it really like for you? And so we covered almost every continent. We covered almost every experience we could think of. And we also included someone who was born here because I thought that was important as well. And we wrote it in English and we repeated it in Spanish in the same book. And that's our story. And so is there this is such an awesome story. Thanks. This thing with books. Being in this author world after I did mine, right? I'm like, man, there is I can't believe that only two percent of the people even write books. You know, wow. that was the first thing, right? I was like, people have so much to share that that go to the grave with them that it's it's it sucks, right? So did you find anything common within the 11? What was the most common thing when you when you interviewed all? Absolutely. I mean, the first common thing I could say is that they wanted everybody to know that what we mentioned before, lack of language never equals lack of intelligence. And many of them had had various experience throughout their lives where they were able to teach people pretty quickly that that wasn't the case. The other piece I think that was important for people to realize is that when you meet someone learning English for the first time, to treat that time in their life like an asset and not a deficit, because what's going to come out of that experience, <laughs> you know, long term is a person who can access, connect and help more people than most people who are monolingual ever could. So I've I've watched now I've been part of uh you know, people's lives, you know, in a martial arts school forever. Right. I, I've, thousands of people have come across my and um, I have learned my girlfriend is Filipino. So uh, I can see sometimes when I'm with her on what it what it, she doesn't have a language barrier because she was she's kind of been here. Right. Mm -hmm. But mom does. Right. And I can see sometimes how they have lack of confidence mm -hmm. because they can't like speak the language mm -hmm. and yeah. so do you feel that that is this is kind of eye-opening for me now listening talking to you about this right because this is not put on the forefront of our head unless somebody kind of brings it out but do you find in the book that you know did people lack confidence so do they feel that they're that they're not smart or they're they feel stupid because they can't communicate and does that lack of, uh, you know, does that give them lack of, you know, self-confidence? That's what Absolutely. I want to know about that. 
Yeah. I mean, it's something we work on. I still work on, you know, with my, my middle school students, you know, and their families and parents that I access and see all the time. I work on that every single day with them because they do feel inadequate because they're learning how to communicate. And in the beginning, when you have a newcomer, you know, people don't understand that it takes five or more years to learn social and academic language of English. English is the most unpredictable language in the world because we borrowed our language from so many other places and then we change the rules. So all of the time we have so many exceptions that not only do they have to learn the basics, they have to learn all the nuances of it. Oh, and by the way, in the US, we don't say soda, we say pop. Or, you know, in, you know, like in any other language, you have multiple terms, right? We don't say hoagie, we say sub, right? You have from, you're all aware to Pennsylvania, right? So you've got all of these moving parts going on. And so, yes, it's completely normal for a person to have a year of what we call the silent period, where they're just taking it in, taking it in, and they can understand before they can respond. That's normal. And then they've got to work their way up to now I can form simple sentences, and, you know, when I traveled to El Salvador, I had you know, fresh, refreshed up on my Spanish for like a year. When I walked off of that plane and I had and I go into what I lovingly called the dirt roads and dogs area of the country. It was not touristy. There were eight people standing there waiting for me who only spoke Spanish as they could. Right. I mean, they didn't speak English. And I had maybe six go to sentences that I was comfortable saying. And then I was that deer in headlights like I got that feeling. What is, you know, and I, by the end of the day, my head would hurt because why your brain is firing twice all day long. You're exhausted, you know, because you're constantly translating in addition to all those other factors that you're assimilating to in this new place. So that hesitancy is part nervousness. It's part exhaustion and it's part wait time because you need the wait time to translate the information to receive, you know, reciprocate an answer. So all of those pieces are happening and that's what affects people's ability in the beginning to communicate the best. Yeah. I think that, I think, yeah, I mean, I'm hearing you really loud and clear on that too, because I've, I, cause even when I talk to Kat, right. And I, and I ask her, so how does that translate in Tagalog? Right. Mm -hmm. And she goes, you know, it's, it's English is weird. It doesn't really translate like what mm -hmm. you would think, right. Mm -hmm. On, on how that, you know, on how that is. And so, when you say you're working with the students, mm -hmm. how, are you trying to help them navigate English? Is that what you're doing? Yes. So we're teaching them how to read, write, speak, and listen to English. All four. And depending on where they're coming from and what their skills are will depend on where we go with it. What I mean by that is this. When you have a student who comes in who's been formally educated wherever, down the street, in another state, in another country, wherever they're coming from, the biggest predictor of how well and how quickly they will acquire their English is how strong they are in their first language. So if they can already read and write in French, that's good news for me because now all I have to do is teach them the differences in English. They can already know their sounds. They just need to learn what the differences are. But if I have a student who comes in who has never learned to read, for example, I had a kiddo from El Salvador who came in and I still have him now. And I got him a few years ago. And in his country and where he went to school, he never learned to read. They had a choice every day. They could go in and go to school or go out and play soccer. Well, when you're a little kid, who's not going to go out and play soccer, right? So he would go out and play soccer every day. So when he came in as a sixth grade student, illiterate, now I have to start with A, Apple, A. Now I have to teach him how to read. 
And mm. so it just depends, you know, what that formal education is their best indicator of how quickly they will be able to acquire that second language. Just like for us, right? If I wanted to go and learn a different language, I already know how to read and write in English. So now I just need to learn the differences in that new language and that will help me. Interesting. Now that's, that's super interesting in your, so let's, let's, let's go to this next thing that we talked about here because I, I'm interested in this. Oh, let me read your bio here. She is also co-author of Chip of the Impact. Um, okay, well, let's do the impact of influence, volume three, because you have two different things, right? Is is the impact of, uh, of influence the same thing of no-nonsense things all school leaders sh shall stop doing? So is they are two, two different books. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's do the impact one first, okay? The impact of influence. And you co-authored this book is what I it did. says, correct? Yes. So what is this one about? What is what? So tell me about this one and what is the what does that mean? And sure. what is the influence that we're talking about? So Chip Baker, shout out to Chip Baker, is a wonderful colleague and author uh, from the Texas area. And he's also an educator of 20 plus years. And he has been doing some amazing work with what he calls the Impact of Influence series. And I happen to be a part of volume three, which was 20 women from around the country that he asked us to each write a chapter about someone or something in our life that impacted and influenced us and got us to where we are today. And who did you pick? So I picked uh, a dear friend of mine named Art, who I met many, many years ago and who helped me really burst out of my bubble, I say, in terms of exposure to the world and the wonderful people around us. And I had always lived in a very reserved, conservative, large Italian family, but in the Philadelphia area, but I had never been exposed to other people, other places, other cultures, other ideas, um, other perspectives. You know, my life was very calm. It was very easy. It was very traditional. And so all of a sudden, I thought that I had this grand life plan, right? I was married really early at 21. I was headed into my first teaching job. I was, I have two beautiful teenage daughters now. I was ready to start to become a mom. And within those first couple of years, I thought everybody's just like me. Everybody should be just like me. And wow, was I wrong. And I started <laughs> to learn, you know, as I, you know, in my first 10 years, um, after I found myself to be 31, I was divorced. I was looking for my first new home. I had my two baby girls who I was, you know, learning how to co-parent with and everything I knew had flipped upside down. And so I wasn't sure how to navigate the world. And I met a dear friend who's still my friend today named Art. And he started to teach me how to take life on one step at a time and like on a dance floor, like one step at a time. And so I had to all of a sudden learn how to go back to school and get more certifications. And I learned how to um, buy my own first house. And I learned how to continue to move into the next chapter of who I was supposed to be. And he helped me understand that. That's an awesome story too. So that's what that book the, is is about. All different people's <clears throat> influencers on who they had. That yeah, influenced. different influencers, different challenges we overcame. Um, it's an awesome book with lots of nuggets from lots of great ladies and with vast age levels, vast experiences, and vast different parts of the country. That's so. That's so good. That's so good. You know, I I think that. Uh, because I look back on my life too, right? And, and there's one or two people that have really influenced my direction 
that, mm-hmm. you know, that has helped me how we um, navigate things. And isn't it something when we are young, we really do think we have the, uh, the world. Well, I thought I had that. all the answers, <laughs> but you know what I learned is, you know, and I, I'm a big fan of John Gordon and his work as well. And the one thing he preaches is no one reaches success alone and, and no one does, you know, it, absolutely. It, it, it's your exposure and, and ability to, to meet different people and take on different perspectives and learn from them and fail forward. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those things are so important in your growth. And it's no fun to stay on the scene dance floor. I'll tell you that it's much more fun to try new steps. Yeah. So that's, that's such a, that's such a good, that's such a good, uh, good analogy there, man. I really enjoyed that. That's just, just something to hear. You remind me a lot of, uh, my daughter-in-law, you know what I mean? She's, she's a teacher like you are and just the excitement that she has, you know, teachers are, um, they're the most, they're the most memorable thing in me. I could tell you that now I'm 61 years old. So. I still remember my third grade teacher like it was yeah. yesterday. And I still remember my principal from back and then now back then, it, you know, I went to a, a Lutheran school. So in, in from elementary all the way up to junior high. And, but I remember my third grade teacher, Mrs. Erickson, of course we used to get wrapped on the knuckles still back then. So, we would, <laughs> uh, you know, when you get, when you start back mouthing her, man, she'd take a ruler out and whack you in the hand with it, and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and that's when the principal could still take you in the office and, and, uh, you know, give you a crack and, you know, if you needed one, you know what I mean? So, yeah. but isn't it funny that those are the ones that are the most memorable to me, the ones that were very high, disciplined, but she was also so loving, you know what I mean? She just wouldn't let me get away with nothing, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, because of her, re- believe it or not, my multiplication was so good because of her. Mm-hmm. And then my ninth grade teacher, um, his name is Gary Toback. I, I remember him like it was yesterday. And he's still alive, so we still go back and forth on, on Facebook. But he was so easily how he taught algebra to us. I still remember all the kind of the stuff that he taught in ninth grade. I, I just never had a, a, a better teacher than that. Um, but they're the most memorable thing that I have in my life for sure. And as I've gotten older, right. I always go back and because when you're in the moment, you don't, you don't really know. I, what I wished I had younger as me, I mean, my teachers were definitely my most memorable things, but I never had a real coach to, um, to push me to the level that I wanted to do in athletic athletics. And, uh, that's why I'm hoping to, uh, I change that just by being other people's coaches to, you know, coach in life, you know, martial arts, they're going to do it in martial arts, but what you're going to learn from me will be life lessons for sure. And discipline's part of that in martial arts. So you know, we didn't get to lose that. So I don't know if you, uh, if you recall or just hear stories back of the day when you get, uh, boy, back in the day, we take a ruler out and wrap the back of your knuckle. <laughs> you know what they are. And to your point, the teacher in the, in the classroom is what makes or breaks the experience. Right. And when I go out and talk to teachers around the country, we talk about, you know, how are you, how are things in your house? And what I mean by that is your schoolhouse. You know, every classroom is is a mini house that kids get to come to. They don't get a choice whether or not they come to your classroom every day. They've been assigned there. So, you know, a good friend of mine, Ricky Ramirez, says, if students had the choice, would they come to your classroom each day? Do you create an environment? that makes students look forward to coming to your class each day, because if they were given a choice, would they show up? And I, and I think that's really telling, you know, it's, you know, because, you know, they're assigned to you, you know, so it's, it's so important (laughs) to create an environment of what I call 
students, it doesn't matter to me if kids are in grades K to 12. It doesn't matter where they came from. It's more important to me where they're going. But they're all looking for the same three things, and so are their parents. They want to feel respected. They want to feel accepted. And they want to feel admired. And by the way, your colleagues do too. So it doesn't matter to me (laughs) who you come across because as a support teacher, I always like to say, I don't live on the block. I live in the city. I work with kids and teachers and administrators in two different buildings in 12 different grades with a lot of different needs and a lot of different life stories. And so I have to be respectful. I have to help them feel accepted and I have to show them I admire them because that's what helps our relationships work. And so so I just try to be aware of that. And, you know, kids want to come to our classrooms for those reasons. I've worked with some of the toughest kids in the building, Title I kids, EL kids. doesn't matter what you want to label them, but kids have a lot of stuff in their backpack when they come to school. So they're looking for us to supply that. And if we can do that 75% of the time, and I like to say not just on their easy days, but on their hard days, then they will work for you. They will work for you because they feel those things all the time. Such good advice for teachers and coaches right there. <clears throat> I tell my, when I, when I do um, leadership classes and, and, and instructor certifications, um, I tell them all the time, when you leave the mat, would you want to take your class? Right. <clears throat> and if, 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 and I said, and when you step on the mat, anything else that's going on in your life has to leave because here people are here to get rid of stuff in their life. So it was such a good, uh, that's such a good good uh, coaching moment right there. Really, really good advice. So the next book then that you did is I'm interested in this title, what that, what that means to uh, uh, doctors, 100 no nonsense things all school leaders shout stop doing. What does that mean? Yeah. So Rick Jetter, Dr. Rick Jetter is based out of New York and he and Rebecca Coda, along with some other folks, have this series as well. And I'm in the second book, which is 100, uh, 100 things that all school leaders should stop doing now. And so it's advice based from educators around the country, and we were assigned different topics. And so the topic that I was assigned was talking about English language learners. And the topic was, and the English language learner is not the sole responsibility of the English language teacher. And so what I was tasked with was talking about teamwork and how important it is that we supply what I like to say, both the life jacket and the raft and have an unbreakable connection between the EL teacher and the content area teacher or the leadership team and the teaching team. You could apply it in a lot of different ways to row our kids back to shore to get them to what we need them to do. Because like we talked about before, you have to team up. We are in what we call the village of school, and the only way that our kids are raised are by access and exposure and practice to lots of people, and everybody has to be on the same team for that reason. So what were some of the other things in the book? In that book? Oh, goodness. There are so many. There there are topics about lesson plans, discipline, um, navigating school culture, Um, social, emotional learning. I mean, there are a hundred different people with a hundred different topics. So you could go to any chapter of interest and read. Do you find that your English, um, English as a second language, how are the parents dealing with the parents of them as opposed to the ones that are from here? You know, I found that all parents 
are looking for that respect, acceptance and admiration. The difference is, is that in the English language learning world, you have parents who prefer English. You have parents who are bilingual and will want documentation in both languages. You have parents who prefer their first language, who are learning English. And you have parents who are not literate in their first language and prefer the audio of their language. So really, you know, the message is no matter what kid, you know, or family you're working with are the same, but the way you communicate it to them is something you have to investigate. Interesting. That's, 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 that's really, uh, sure. Yeah. That's pretty profound too, because I, you know, I hear that, uh, almost the same way. Um, my daughter-in-laws, she does say that, um, parents that come from another country, definitely are more uh, disciplined on their kids. I can tell you that. That's okay. one thing she does tell me out here okay. in, the, in the elementary, in the elementary world. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so that's, that's definitely something in, in here. And I think we, we talked, we spoke a little bit beforehand and I forgot to mention this, unfortunately in the beginning, but you said that it's made up of, of, you know, I told you out here, you know, I'm, I'm talking probably about 75, 80% is probably Hispanic here in California mm-hmm. is what the English as a second language is. Okay. And you said out there, it's a big diversity of, it is. of different things. Yes. Like in my district in particular, I'm literally 15 minutes South of Philadelphia airport and we have over 300 active students with 29 different languages. So it's not one set population, but I've traveled to places I haven't been to California yet, but I hope to come out there. Um, But I've traveled to Texas. I've traveled to Florida. I've traveled to uh, north to New York. I've traveled um, out west to Ohio. And every population looks very different depending on where you are in the country. So when you travel, tell me about that. When you travel, what is it that you're doing or how, how are you educating others or helping others? What is it you're doing with that? Yes. So our goal is to go out and work with educators around the country and help them learn how to plan for, connect, teach, and reach English language learners and their families. And as I listen to a lot of the struggles around the country, teachers are really not confident sometimes with how do I talk to mom and dad? How do I work with a student who is a level one and learning English for the first time? How do I plan lessons? How do I connect with my content area teachers? How do I schedule for English language learners? Or what other opportunities are out there for them when they leave school? And so, you know, that's just that academic piece. And then socially and emotionally, how do I connect them with other English language learners in the buildings? How can I connect them district-wide, county-wide? Like there's all these great things that we can do to work with teachers. And it's not because they don't want to do better. They just don't know better. They haven't had that that lens of training that I've had. So once we wrote Take Me Home, it kind of happened organically where schools, uh, you know, teachers were reading this book around the country and connecting with it. And it was moving them and which was great. You know, it's the message that we wanted to be sent. And they were like, hey, Andrea, can, can you come talk to our teachers? And I was like, sure. And so that's what organically kind of happened was we created this presentation called Take Me Home, Unmasking the Fear of Communicating with English, English Language Learners and Their Families. And we've started presenting it around the country for the past year. And it's, it's been really well received. We're helping a lot of people learn how to teach and reach bilingual families and feel confident about communicating with them. So how do you, so are you getting, you know, different school districts or whatever calling you and say, Andrew, I'd like you to come here and mm-hmm. speak. And when you do come and speak, what is, what is some of the, the things that educators are telling you that they're having issues with? What is it, was it, what is it they're saying? 
So what we kind of built our presentation around was exactly that. So I created what are the 10 essential questions you should ask when you receive an English language learner in your classroom? So should you be finding out about their first language? Should you be finding out what mom and dad prefer? Should you be accessing your curriculum director? Should you be talking to everybody in the building to see who's going to interact with them outside of you? And it kind of goes from there, right? Then we start to talk about some of their struggles with communicating with their parents. And I show them eight real resources they could use tomorrow to immediately communicate with their parents. And so from there, then we get into the why do we matter? Why do content area teachers matter? Well, why do all teachers matter? And what do our kids need from us? And we talk about that. Um, and then we incorporate some pieces of Take Me Home into the presentation, which is very moving for a lot of people because the young people from this book have created a documentary where we use short clips from it to give them what their perspectives was, was like in their voice. Um, and teachers really enjoy watching those pieces of the documentary too where we weave them through the presentation. When you looking at the kids that now now that are twenty two, right? Yeah, and they're what thirties. Some of them, yeah, they're in they're their thirties now, right? So they're older. Yeah. Now they're older, probably with families now, right? I'm teaching their kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Isn't that something? Mm -hmm. uh, I did the same thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm teaching kids kids now, but um, yes. So when when you these little documentaries, what are they saying? What give me some of their feedback? What is it that they said to you about? Um, their experience was it good was it bad what was what was some of these students takeaways you know their experiences were good and the one thing they said they felt for the most was that they knew their teachers cared about them and when they knew their teachers cared about them they knew that the what I like to call the microscope thinking they had at that time which was the day-to-day -day survival mood of learning this new language was something that their teachers could cast aside because their teachers were thinking with their binoculars. And that binocular thinking is, I can see this long-term plan for you, even though you can't see it right now. Mm -hmm. And I can plan for that for you, even if you can't see it right now. And I can connect you with people in this building because as a teacher, and I talk to teachers about this, sometimes you know, you're know you constantly swinging this bat for students and sometimes you get tired and you don't think it's working and you feel like you're swinging at the air the next day and nothing worked, no ball was hit, right? No home run yet and you're swinging again and nothing's happening. And sometimes it's important to be able to hand that bat off. And sometimes it's for the next teacher in the next year or the school psychologist or the school counselor or the school nurse or the admin team or the office team. So you have to be able to share that bat to have long-term success for the kids. The kids in this book understood that. They saw that. They felt that connection from people around the building. They also talked about their experiences with different weather, different cultures, different patterns. Um, one of the kids in the book was keen here alone. Mom decided when he was 16 that he needed to go to the U.S. He had an opportunity and he came onto the U.S. and nobody was at the airport to pick him up. And he was 16 years old all by himself. And he hmm. got had a little book and this planning book and with all these phone numbers in it. And he just quickly started looking through the book and he found a word that said uncle. And he knew that was his uncle who was supposed to take him. And he called him and he came and got him. And that's how he started his life here. I had other kids that had come from prestigious boarding schools where everything was scheduled for them from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. in Africa and down to their lunch, their time to sleep, their time to wake up, their time to work out. And then they came here to our school system and everything was completely different. They didn't understand where they were supposed to be, where they were supposed to go, who was supposed to find them. And they didn't understand why it wasn't regimented. You know, then I had other kids that came to school from India 
and had British English. So the differences were there in vocabulary. So I could go on and on, but there's just so many, you know, differences that they assimilated to that we mentioned throughout the story. And that's really, I think, one big takeaway people have after reading it is, wow, I never realized how different it could be for every young person who comes here experiencing our place for the first time. Your, your questions that you have. So I'm going back to these questions that you have, right? When you sit down with educators and say, you know, here's some 10, 10 questions, right. Mm -hmm. That you have, right. To, to help facilitate things. Can those questions help with coaches, not just teachers, anything? Absolutely. Can they go across the board? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because what it's really asking you to do is what I like to say is find the movie of the student, not the snapshot. So really you're, you're, you're digging into all of their strengths, all of their areas of need. And then you're communicating it to everybody that they're going to interact with throughout their school day so that they can feel successful. And you're then you're willing to stick it out with them through the ups, downs, the good days, the ugly days and everything in between so that you can use those binoculars for that long-term thinking. But the whole team is behind it and not just one person. So Andrew, are you a bridge? Like, let's say that, that you're, you're not per se their English teacher. You're not per se their math teacher, correct? Mm -hmm. Are you a bridge between them and the teacher that is teaching? And yes. when they have issues, are they coming to you saying, I have an issue doing this? I need, mm -hmm. a, I need a different way or I'm having an issue with the teacher and can you bridge gaps? So, yes, to answer your question, I love the way that you said bridge, because we just had an article written about us in uh, Pennsylvania State Educators uh, magazine, and it's coming out next month. And I just got a preview of it um, today. And the first line of it, what the author wrote was, is that Andrea Bittner is a natural bridge builder. And I laughed because I mm. never I've never thought of it that way. But I appreciate you saying that. Um, but yes, you know, we are as EL teachers, well, any teacher wears a lot of hats, right? But as EL teachers, as a support teacher in the building, we are supporting the kids, we're supporting the admin, we're supporting the teachers, we're supporting the parents, we are supporting their scheduling, their navigating, right, their emotional needs, all these pieces. And it's important that we do that so that the kid will be able to reach their goals. Um, and I think that what one role of, you know, an EL teacher is in addition to that is, is their teacher. You know, so not only are we navigating all those pieces, but we're also teaching them their skills every day. That is, uh, yeah, that's, I'm starting to understand a little bit now, spending this little time with you, kind of what your role is now, right, is, mm -hmm. and how important it can be, because I guess, I guess a young student isn't going to have a way to communicate mm -hmm. without having somebody to kind of come to and say, I'm having time with this. And do you find it, do you find it difficult or do you just have a gift in order to go to another teacher and say, Hey, you know, so-and-so is having this issue. I've learned that, you know, being able to do this with him, this may be a better way of approaching that. So what I think we're, you're referencing here too is accommodations, right? So, and, and mm -hmm. by the way, it's a law. It's not just a recommendation from an EL teacher, students that are learning English are required to have accommodations. And we can we teach teachers those accommodations for reading, writing, listening, and speaking in their regular content curriculum. And if a student at the middle or high school or elementary level fails a class, that teacher and myself have to provide documentation that says 
we put all of these written accommodations in place or, you know, speaking accommodations, listening accommodations, whatever it might be, we put them in place. And despite those, the students still failed. And so without those accommodations, the failure is not warranted because there are required by law to have them. Copy that. So I, I have, you know, it's kind of like the same title one stuff out here in California, right? Yes. So there was accommodations too for even my own children, right? The, you mm-hmm. know, our children that need to, uh, maybe they need a little bit longer on a test because they can't, you know, they're not processing properly, or maybe they need to go to another classroom where it's a little more quiet, a little autistic uh, stuff and, and, and the noise, you know, distracts and, and, and whatever. So I see that that kind of seems to be um, what it is, but I can tell because uh, I've had good and bad experiences with it, just so you know, right? I've had it to where my kids were just kind of put in a, in a classroom and they were the, uh, you know, the, the spastic kids, right? The, uh, and they just, they kind of do their own little work throughout the day and there wasn't really accommodations in a regular class. So, and then you have to go fight, man, Right. You have to go fight for what you want for your kids. You got to be on top of it. And then you'll find somebody, which I did right here in, you know, in Chatsworth where I'm at. And her her name was Kim Shrebley. Like I told you, man, these, these, these certain (laughs) people that have took my kids under their wings. And I'm going to be honest with you, Andrea, my one, you know, I had to repeat third grade when I, I went to a kindergarten in, in, in a public school, kindergarten for a second. When I went to the private school, you took a test and they said, hey, he's going to struggle or you can just keep him back in third grade. And my folks decided to let me do third grade again in the parochial school. But that's probably what set me up for success in all the way through junior high, because uh, I was the top of the class instead of being in the bottom of the class trying to trying to, you know, instead of being like a duck with my feet going a million miles an hour, trying to tread water. I was at least on, on top of it. Right. And though in that, in that particular area of life, but uh, in second grade, I wanted that because it happened to me. I wanted that for my own children. I wanted that one of my sons, I would rather, I said, let's let him repeat it because it's going to be easier for him the second time. He's going to retain this and it's going to set him up for success. And they would not do it. Okay. would not and he struggled through school it's funny he struggled through school even all the way through high school with accommodations and all that kind of stuff he got an aa degree and and then all of a sudden things started to kind of change in his own head i don't know why and now he's going to graduate with his bachelor's now in may right this is my middle son right okay. and so i watched this whole thing with accommodations and School was such a struggle, struggle. Then all of a sudden, year and a half into college, I don't know if he figured it out or what the difference is. Have you heard these kind of stories before where they struggle, struggle, struggle? Then all of a sudden, everything, the puzzle pieces start to fit together. Have you heard that? Absolutely. You know, every every kid has different needs, different areas of strength, different areas of need. And we just need to meet them where they are and continue to meet them where they are as they grow. What's most important through those grades is, are they growing? Are they making progress? And some kids' progress will be slower than others, but are they working at their max to make the progress you need them to make during the year? And do they need that kind of extra support through the summer? Yes or no. And then as they move into the next year, 
Do they continue to make progress? And as they grow older, are they a stakeholder in their own progress? Are you having conversations with the kids? Because kids get pretty adept pretty quickly. Right around third grade is when that social awareness starts to set in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm really great at X, but I need help with Y. Or she's better than me at Z, and I really need help with L, right? It just depends. Even with English language learners, our kids don't realize that they are bilingual until just around third grade. When that social awareness sets in, all of a sudden it's, oh, I can do something some of my friends can't. Or, oh, I'm struggling with something today in English, but my friends don't, you know? And so they'd start to get that awareness. So as they move through school and and any young person, whatever label they may have, English language learner, gifted, title one, reading support, math support, whatever it might be, are they growing? And as they grow, are they an active participant in understanding what they need and about what they want? moving forward. So let me ask you, you know, we're coming I want to make sure I respect well, your quick, time, but yeah. I want, yeah, I want to make sure that I understand from your perspective, something to end with is tell me how you discipline. Okay. And, and how you have the kids take ownership of, of what they're doing, whether it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. How, what is your, give me some of your, your nuggets that you have as far as, how do you discipline, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? How do you cut through the bull? You, you, you know what I'm saying? And uh, how do you cut through that? And then tell me how you have them take ownership of what they're doing, because that's the real lesson. When you take ownership, that's when growth really happens. Yeah. Give, give I, me some of your insights. I think the, fir- the first important factor in in discipline and in any, you know, situation with, with kids is your relationship with them. So you have to build a relationship of trust, acceptance, admiration with a student so that when a discipline issue shows up, right? Because everybody has a bad day. You have to be respected enough by them that they know that you're going to A, let them know they're not meeting your expectation and B, model for them how you want it to look going forward. Because you can't assume that all kids just know how to act. Like I've read a lot of work with Ruby Payne and it's called Understanding Poverty. And it talks about the the um, the hidden rules of, of different places in school. Like I could go to this teacher's class and I know I can do this, but I could never do that in that teacher's class. And a lot of kids <laughs> coming from different places, they have these like different mentalities that they're learning depending on where they come from in life. Don't just get that. They don't just know that. And so a lot of times it's figuring out if a kid is acting because behavior is, you know, behavior never lies, right? Behavior never lies. So if a kid's coming into your class and there is a discipline issue, what kind of relationship do I have with that kid? Am I going to talk to them privately? Am I going to speak to them at the end of the day? Am I going to catch them in the morning? Am I going to call mom with them? Am I going to talk to them and email mom? Like what would work with that dynamic? And B, am I being consistent? And so whenever you set an expectation, we have to also go into it the expectation that somebody's not probably going to meet it. And when they're not, what's going to happen? And being really transparent with kids about what that might be. And so once that happens, though, the follow through, because every time you make a decision as a teacher and in anything, but I feel like as teachers, I think I read somewhere we have like 15,000 decisions a day that we make in our head. And you've got, you know, 30 pairs of eyes watching you. So whatever you do, good, bad, or ugly, it's got to be consistent. And whether that's a reward or a consequence. And whatever you do, good, bad, or ugly, 
it's going to be based on the relationship you better have with that kid. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome advice. I think that uh, I wanted to get I want to get your perspective on that because, you know, I have a lot of like I said, I have teachers here and I have coaches, too. And I and mm -hmm. there's two things that in a martial arts school. Discipline is kind of built in. That's why people bring them to us because mm -hmm. they're lacking it. Mm -hmm. Right. But in what most people lack is self-discipline. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell the kids all the time. Discipline is me telling you what to do. Self-discipline is you doing the right thing without me telling you. Right. And when and nobody's looking. That's correct. That's I right. said, and when you can master that, mm -hmm. then you're going to master um, stuff in your life that that matters. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I also talk about extreme ownership. You know, that when you can take extreme ownership, when you can stop blaming everybody else for what you're what you're missing mm -hmm. and you take ownership, mm -hmm. that's how things are going to start getting fixed. You know what yeah. I mean? Because I yeah. think as humans, we uh, human beings, we have a tendency to not want to put the blame on ourselves. We want to put the blame somewhere else. And I was just wondering how that goes. I can see how that could happen with a, a young student in uh, English as a second language. And it, it's just not fair. I don't understand. I'm not from here. Mm -hmm. And and, you know, having those type of excuses instead of taking some ownership and saying, I'm struggling. So mm -hmm. I got to take, you know, I got to I got to be able to do what you know, what, what I need to do on my own. True. Also, and along they always, with your thing. Yeah. And they, oh, and never assume that they always, they know how to do it. Not, you know, that's with any young person, you know, and, mm -hmm. and as teachers, it's, you know, we're their model, you know, what we may think is, is our normal may not be their normal in their outside world. So teaching them how to, yes, be accountable for what those hidden rules are in this environment. We're in that teacher's class um, because they need to learn those and then be held to accountable for it. Yeah, that's really good, Andrea. I, I, I really enjoyed your demeanor. I I, I think that uh, just getting to know you here for, for 55 minutes or so like that, it would be a pleasure to have one of my kids in front of you, right? Awesome. I, would, I would feel that I would have an advocate for my child. Mm -hmm. I didn't always feel that way, man. I'm telling you, man, it was a fight sometimes, man, in schools. And L.A. Unified is not not user friendly, OK, by any means. And that's probably the same in any anytime government's involved in something, it sucks. OK, so that's just the way it goes. But and you're going to have to learn how to maneuver through and and, and 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 get what you need for yourself and push what you need for yourself. And when it's very refreshing to have somebody of, of like yourself this was good for me today. I'm just going to tell you, and every, every time I do these things, these podcasts, right, everybody asks about my guests and stuff. I said, to be honest with you, it's like I'm having a cup of coffee with somebody. I'm learning stuff for myself every freaking time I do one, man, right? And even today, I took a lot out of listening just to your demeanor and what you are. And I, and I look back at myself as an educator here, as a coach, and I'm like, huh, I, I'm, I'm, I try really hard to understand how do you not understand this? I've shown you a thousand times. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, are you not understanding or are you not doing okay? Mm -hmm. The your work? Okay. Mm -hmm. And I said, I I can't help you here unless I know for sure what you're doing here. So you're gonna have to have some ownership in what you're doing, and you can't be lying to me, okay? Do you do it or do you not? Mm -hmm. And I have to rely on, of course, my expertise of doing this for 40 years on on what I feel they they are not doing. But I liked I like I do this naturally with special needs children, with parents. How do they learn things the best? Mm -hmm. 
do, uh, you know, this kind of thing, but I don't do it across the board. And I think that's a failure on my part, to be honest with you. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and there's always, there's always a why behind it, right? So Mm -hmm. not, you know, what are you doing, but why are you doing it, you know, on your end and on their end, you know, so just always being aware of that every time a, a kid gets something or doesn't get something or behaves a certain way or doesn't behave a certain way, there's a why behind it. And so that's where our role comes in as the expert and the adult to say, let me figure that out. Yeah, this was, yeah, very eye-opening for me today because you know, it's like anything else. You know, I got to give Coach Wooden one time a black belt, right? And I'd ask him this specific question. I said, how do you get those that are super talented to be disciplined and have that have that self-discipline that they need to have as opposed to the one that has a heart but never just has that talent? Mm-hmm. And he told me, Sometimes you need to pat him on the shoulder. Sometimes you need to go a little bit lower. That's what coach <laughs> told me. Right? And, uh, and uh, I'll never forget that. I said, oh, I got you. Copy that. Um, so this was good for me. I, I, I really, really enjoyed um, just your demeanor on, on how it is and, and your candor of what it is. I think what you have going on is super important for us. And we don't live in this world. I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't I don't. I haven't lived even myself. All right. I, you know, I'm born and raised here and stuff like that without a, a, a background of, of other culture. This, this is kind of where I born and lived. And just to hear that there's culture involved, there's every, everything involved. And I think that that takes a little bit of maturity on, on my part. I, as a young man, I probably wouldn't even done it. You know what I mean? I would probably just say, you know, suck it up and, and, uh, you know, suck it up buttercup. You know what I mean? Life is hard. And then you die. Let's go. You know what I mean? That would be, uh, (laughs) that would be my, uh, back as a young guy, that would be like my coach waters for the week, you know? Uh, uh, so, you know, which is motivates me, but it definitely doesn't motivate everybody. And so I just wanted to say thank you for that. Thank you for being an educator. And we're going to put all your books and stuff out there online. Uh, I think that I even have parents that maybe can listen, uh, would probably buy something from your and learn something from these 11 students on what it was really like and how important a good educator is. I really want to appreciate Andrea coming on here with me and teaching me something today. It was really good. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And we love hearing from people around the country. We continue to hear from people who have read the work and or had us out to their schools. And so if they want to check us out, we're at uh, www.andreabittnerbooks.com. You can learn more about these 11 young people, the journey that we've been on and, and where we're headed next. So it would be awesome to see them. Yes. If you get out this way, I don't know how that works or how I'm able to even help facilitate that in my, especially in my community. I mean, I'm pretty known in this community, but, um, um, I'll look at John Morelli, you know, you know why he's on here. He grew up in the PA school system. Ah, This is a student of mine. Yeah. He's one of your peeps. Um, and so I think that uh, if you get out this way, uh, a cup of coffee would be warranted. And uh, with my daughter-in-law, I I would love that. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. Let's do it. Sounds good. All right, Andrea. I know you got to go. You got things you got to do. I appreciate your hour. (laughs) I know you're you're, you're strapped for time. Have a good day. All right. Have a great day. See you soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Real Talk with Mark Cox. Real life, real topics, real conversation. We're passionate about motivation, fitness, self-defense, weight loss 
and coming at it from a real angle. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you had fun. We know we did. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on Instagram and Facebook at MarkCox100. Make sure to subscribe and review and tell a friend or two about the show. For more, hit up the website at markcox.com. Till next time, keep it real.